This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad. And as you heard in Steve's news, just announced just before airtime, the child care deal with Ontario that will bring down child care fees. Now, there is an interesting Zoomer angle on this because a lot of Zoomers take care of their grandchildren. And while it is the labor of love, usually, uh, it isn't always voluntary. Sometimes they do it because their kids cannot afford daycare. I know people who have quit their own work to take care of the grandkids so the daughter can go back to work. I have friends uh, who do not accept any invitations before they check with their kids. And the words they use are not, oh, I'm so thrilled to see my grandkid again. It's, I have to babysit. So let us begin there. Bill, what's uh, your view? Is this going to help overworked grandparents? Well, it certainly will help overworked uh, grandparents. As you say, there are many of them who have to provide uh, child care for their grandkids because the parents can't afford it. They don't want to do it all the time. It really uh, controls their lives. As you say, I do have many friends who can't do things or have to back out at the last minute if child care needs uh, arise. So that uh, I think that uh, uh, with some exceptions, uh, uh, older Ontarians are going to welcome this announcement today. David Kravitz, once again in studio. Glad nice to, to see you. Thank you, Libby. I think that Bill's right. That um, two two points. Number one, um, this was made even worse during COVID because there were many people who uh, couldn't send their kids to school, so the kids are at home on Zoom. Who's watching them while I have to go to work? Uh, so there was even double duty for the grandparents. Um, but I would also point out that even with or without child care, there's a kind of a utilitarian. Uh, meaning to that. But for a lot of grandparents, um, they like being with the grandkids. And I mean, it's a whole other topic in a sense. But um, to many people who were perhaps not as involved as parents or not as warm and fuzzy as parents, they are seeing the grandchildren as an opportunity to perhaps bolster family relationships. And the grandkids are almost a bridge back to uh, the kids. And that's a whole other theme, but it is a reality for a lot of people that uh, being a, an active grandparent becomes a constructive part of your life. Uh, well, let's get to more on that in a minute, but let's finish with the practicalities first. Uh, and I want to throw it out there, people, if you're a grandparent, if you take regular care of your grandchildren, uh, even maybe if you have to do it a little more than you would like to, give us a shout, 416 360 
toll free 1-866-744-740. And uh, Peter, I know that uh, a lot of the readers of the magazine are grandparents, and this is surely affecting them. Yeah, and and uh, it's interesting because it, David mentioned about the the sort of the, the grandparents carrying on the the bond, like like a, a, the family bond, and and in our neighborhood, um, there are a lot of older um, Portuguese and Italian grannies, uh, known as I guess they're called, who who look after their grandkids, and um, their grandkids speak Portuguese and they speak Italian, so that kind of that kind of early teaching element um, will be lost when the kids go to subsidized daycare. And, and I think many parents will want that bond there. And even though there is subsidized daycare, they will, um, you know, they'll want their, their, their grandparents to still play a role in, in, in the child care activities. Well, yeah, I'm just saying that it's, it's one thing to play a role and, and even an important and central role, but it's another thing to be chained to basically. Right. To be expected every day to provide, to be there to provide care. Or to always be available to it. I mean, right. that's, that's, you know, with the people that I know, that's kind of what, uh, gets me sometimes. It's, it's not, are you available on, on Tuesday night, but it's, you better be. <laughs> <laughs> David, that's, I mean, is that's, that... That's the key difference. It, the, when it becomes an obligation, right? particularly right. when the grandparent feels that um, it's not a dire emergency obligation. I think everybody understands doctor's visits or, or, you know, heaven forbid, illnesses or something where everybody's got to kind of step up and pitch in. But if you feel that you've become... Uh, a convenience um, service on demand. <laughs> well, ex- exactly. <laughs> then, then it changes everything, and I think that's something that is, uh, and that won't be solved by daycare because who says it's that kind of uh, obligation only uh, it doesn't occur after five p.m. Well, it often does. Well, it often does. Yeah. So people, you know, should do they have to stay home so their uh, kids can go on a date night? That's exactly right. That's it's, the problem. That's um, that's the problem. But it but it is also a problem on the other end. I mean, I know families and uh, David. We often talk about intergenerational households, but they kind of um, make certain decisions. I know one family, for instance. So they decided to move together to a house. Uh, the grandma stopped working her job, started taking care of the kids, the daughter goes back to work. And I mean, it works really well. And it seems like uh, an excellent arrangement, but I, it's not for everyone. Well, it's not for, but you left out the flip side, because some developers are starting to design housing with that in mind, where there's a kid's wing and a grandparent's wing, and then the living room kitchen sort of is shared in the center. But the expectation in that setting it's, we're starting to see it just now, is the grandparents are indeed the babysitters for the kids, but the kids are the caregivers for the grandparents. Oh, well, that's, that, that, that seems like an, uh, that's, that's a fair exchange, I'd say. I think so. But there are actually people are actually planning that now with their eyes wide open that it's going to work both ways. Well, well they're building from the ground up, David, and, and developments, are they? Or, or Some. There are some. Yeah. There are some homes where there's a, a central, um, as I said, you know, kitchen, living room, dining room, but right. then bedrooms on one side, bedrooms on the other. And uh, the expectation is that the 
pooling of the resources of the parent or grandparent plus the, the adult kids allows you to buy a bigger house and you then configure that house either from the ground up or by renovation to right. take care of both generations under one roof. Right. And the older generation deliberate gets thing, into the market deliberate, yeah. and the older generation provides uh, help. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. one of the things that gets me about the whole thing um, is there's a certain taking for grantedness. We were just in Palm Springs and we ended up just having a quick drink with some friends of ours. These are good friends of ours. And when we first got in touch, well, they said, oh, I, I don't think you we can have you come and stay. We had no expectation of that, but we did hope to have dinner together. And it's like, well, my grandchildren just told me at the very last minute that they're coming. You know what I yeah, mean? It's right. yeah. That's that's an issue that uh, that we're seeing. The expectation that uh, grandparents will be there to look after the the children, no matter what, without uh, uh, with without asking, with checking, without uh, considering the needs. And one one of the things that we see is happening now is that uh, older uh, Ontarians are living longer, they're healthier. When they retire, they want to travel, they want to do other things. And the expectation of, uh, uh, of their children is very high that they, they'll put all that on hold to look after the grandkids. And many of our, of our older uh, Ontarians don't think that's fair. Well, and the other thing is, so message to the younger generations, grandparents have lives. <laughs> Exactly. They right. have exactly. lives. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they They're probably not would right. not call and say, uh, kids, we're coming for a nice dinner on Tuesday night. <laughs> <laughs> they have lives. And in many cases, they still have jobs. Yeah. Right. They, exactly. are, they are either uh, uh, coming back out of retirement, never retired, switched retirement into part-time gig, uh, side hustle, you know, 10 years ago, less than uh, 300,000 Canadians over the age of 65, less than 300, I don't remember the number, it was less than 300, had an office in their home, a home office. Today, it's over a million Wow! people over the age of 65 have a home office. Now, they're doing something there. They're, you know, whether it's a small business, a little something or other, but the point is they do have lives and they are active lives. And so to assume that they had nothing else to do, they're just waiting for that magic phone call where they can come over with some candy for the, for the little kids again. Uh, those days may be gone. Okay, let's hear from Gabrielle in Waterloo. Hello, Gabrielle. Oh, hello. Go ahead. You're on the air. Um, yes, I just wanted to make a comment that uh, I think it's wonderful that they're getting subsidy for daycare, but I really think that it is very uh, selfish and disrespectful to expect grandparents to babysit all the time. Um, I certainly did not agree to that, and I never did that. I helped out somewhat, but I felt that I did my duty raising mine. Now it's your turn to raise yours. Good for you. And your 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 kids were respectful of that? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. She was she was very respectful of that fact. She understood um she understood that very well. Yes. And I was I was pleased and also I think that you have to educate your children um to be responsible people. 
that it, when you have children, that is your responsibility. Uh, people around you are, are happy to help out, but you have to, you can't expect, and you know, it's very, very draining physically and mentally to have little people around. Yeah. I mean, I should talk. I don't have little people around. We don't have kids, so we don't have grandkids. Sometimes I have to say I'm, I'm a little jealous of people who have these adorable grandkids and, and they do go home. <laughs> usually, get all the good usually stuff. not always. Get all the good stuff usually, not, the <laughs> not not always. Yeah, sleepovers and rooms. I just it's it's just that when I see uh, people kind of the uh, giving their autonomy up is the wrong word, but it's they become kind of pushovers. They become like nanny, yes, exactly. You know? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, I, I exactly. That's that's exactly right. And you don't. I don't think that that is good for the grandparents, the parents, or the children to see it that way. I, I don't think that that is a very good family dynamic. Yeah. Though I have to say, now I'm thinking back to when my parents were alive, which is a while ago, and and we were adults. We did kind of have this assumption that they there was absolutely nothing they would want to do more than hang out with us. Uh, so I don't know. But I think the, the, the caller here puts in a very important context. It's not so much what the grandparents doing. What are they expected to do? Are they doing it? That's right. Are they doing it anyway? Okay, because probably I don't know our probably you, know, you spoil them a little bit. You played with them a little bit. You, but uh, is it an expectation? Is it a duty? In the absence of the kids performing that duty, it's a very different context. You may wind up doing exactly the same things, but if you are kind of expected to do this, you better do this. It changes the whole tenor of uh, the relationship, obviously. Okay, let's take a call from Pat in Etobicoke. Thank you, Gabrielle, for that. Pat? Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. I want to let you know that back in 1979, before I got married, I sat down with my future mother-in-law and said, Aster, would you want to babysit? And she said no, because she had actually raised um, the oldest one while her uh, my father-in-law was still overseas. And so I, I respected that, and I knew. So I turned around and said, okay, I'm not going to stop and have a child for two years. My husband and I are going to work our butts off. And then I can have the child with that extra money that I banked with my husband. And that's how, how we did it. Uh, so, that sounds very modern. <laughs> and well, then, yeah, because I did, I, did, I did respect them. They're both dead now, but obviously I did care. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for that. And that was uh, back in the day, shall we say. Thanks, Pat. Well, yeah, but even when we were doing it, people were scoffing at us, you hmm. know, um, in the newspapers and everything, because you can go back a bit. But that's what we did. Yep. 
Good for you, Pat. Thanks for sharing that. So there are all all kinds of arrangements, and I I guess uh, it's one thing if you're looking after grandkids full time because your family or your kids cannot afford the daycare, which is in Toronto is very possible. And it's another, I mean, they can't take you for granted unless you let them, I guess. (laughs) There's one other wrinkle, Libby, and that is that uh, often I see couples, uh, grandparents who who, uh, don't have the same interest in looking after the children, uh, the one uh, the one spouse would like to travel, do other things, be free, and the uh, the other spouse uh, is happy to take the responsibility of the grandkids, and that puts some real uh, pressures and strains on those relationships. I'll bet it does, Peter. Yeah, I, I don't like. I, I'm not in the grandparent demo yet, but. Yep. I don't understand where they get the energy to do it every day. Like, I, I found my kids were exhausting enough when I was young, you know, and and I wasn't even doing that much caregiving. <laughs> but uh, I, I can't understand how, how people in their 70s and 80s do it every day. It, it's just like they must have these deep reserves that uh, I, I didn't have as a as a younger father, you know. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's another thing that I hear from friends. It's it's really tiring it to be running after a two year old or whatever. It is. Yeah, it's we we found with uh, many of our CART meetings, we can't do them on Mondays because our our executive and volunteer leaders say, "I have the the grandkids on the weekend, and I've got to rest on Monday." Right. They've totally <laughs> warmed me out all weekend. That's yes, often. Yes. Often. But but again, is it because everybody agreed to that, or is it because of an unspoken expectation that the grandparents secretly resent but are kind of guilted into going along with? And I, I think you see probably both situations. Mm-hmm. Everybody's situation is very different, but I think there's a lot of cases where um, the the expectation is there, and I think that's what... Uh, people are pushing back against not so much the activity but the expectation that you don't really have any discretion here uh, and it's a lot and the resentment builds up if it's a lifestyle issue obviously if it's an emergency issue if there's no option if there's illness if there's some unfortunate circumstance but if it's an expectation um, there is a lot of uh, pushback against this and it's exacerbated as you pointed out Libby by the fact they have a life they they want to go somewhere. They want to do something. What about the snowbirds that disappear for three or four months? Well, that's a good more? way to get out of it, isn't it? <laughs> then, of course, Florida, then, 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 then the kids and grandkids, I'm sure, uh, will decamp in, in Florida or wherever well, at a time they of their choosing. They will certainly visit. Um, David, I want to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, is that, on the other hand, uh, grandkids can serve to be a bridge and to repair fractured family relationships. This is starting to uh, occur a lot, and we're actually seeing, uh, I've seen some examples in these, I guess it's a bit of a fad, this whole sort of reinvention thing, and the... Um, many counselors are out there giving you you career advice and how to rejuvenate your career and all that. And then some people are saying, well, wait a minute, what about, uh, does your achievement in later life, 
as opposed to retirement. You want to do new things. Does it all have to involve career or money or occupation or learning a new language? That's all kind of exciting and sexy and so forth. Could it not be also introspection and looking inwardly at what you missed, what you have a chance to repair, what you have a chance to do better um, relationship? And of course, the grandchildren are a very good bridge to that because they show up, you know, innocent, <laughs> no baggage. And so they can become a, a uh, in a very positive, loving way. I'm not talking about this from any, you know, cynical point of view, but they can become a very positive bridge to a, a stronger family. Uh, Bill, have you seen any of that? Uh, some, yes. Uh, I think David is, is quite right that uh, often the uh, focus on the, the uh, grandchildren means that uh, other uh, other past happenings are uh, forgotten. We've also seen, of course, incidences where the grandchildren coming along have created even more uh, division, especially where there are mixed families and mixed marriages and, and more than just the two traditional uh, grandparents uh, involved. Then uh, sometimes there can be a push and pull on the grandkids, which uh, I don't think is always uh, healthy, healthy for uh, them. But there certainly is a change in uh, in attitude. And something that, that David mentioned is, is very true, I think, and very well uh, worthwhile thinking about and that is as people are planning what they're going to do after their uh, their main job after what we used to call retirement but uh, our refocus now this is one of the things that has to be uh, considered as you're planning ahead what role do you want to play and make sure you make it clear uh, to your family to your children uh, how you want to be treated as a uh, grandparent, that uh, they can't have expectations that are beyond what you're willing to do. Hmm. And then, of course, there is the extreme, and and we've uh, done stories here on Fight Back, and that's when grandparents are cut out because of family feuds and don't have access to their grandkids, and uh, those are really horrible situations, Peter. Absolutely, and and we did we did something a number of years ago on. Uh, on that very situation, uh, sort of exploring what the grandparents' rights were, um, you know, in terms of visiting uh, grandkids who have been, uh, you know, their their uh, daughter-in-law or son-in-law have, have removed them from their from visiting rights. From them. and and we and we did a, a long piece on it, and and it got a lot of good feedback. And it was, you know, this idea that the grandparents were, were heavily involved in the early. Uh, years with the grandkids, and then all of a sudden that was cut off because of uh, marital difficulties. And um, you know, it, it's it's a huge problem. And I I don't know what where the courts are now, but I know back then there there was no real provision for grandparents visiting rights. It was it was decided on a, on an inv- individual case by case basis. Yeah, it's it's a checkered board of of laws across the country uh, now. Uh, Peter and some provinces have dealt with it; others haven't. Okay. For, uh, okay. Some some of our uh, listeners, I think, they would identify this as being a real issue in their families. Right, right. And making it even more complicated, even if you don't have that sort of black white situation of you were the parents of the husband, and now the ex wife doesn't want you anywhere near. Even without that, um, another phenomenon is that the rate of divorce among baby boomers is the highest of any age group in society today. 
Gray divorce. Gray divorce. Yeah. Which means gray remarriage, which means even in an amicable situation, even without cutting anybody out, suddenly along comes a new spouse with a new set of grandkids. And you might have, if they both remarry, four sets of overlapping, interconnecting, you know, grandkids. So A, the logistics and B, the emotional sorting out, even with no underlying venom or enmity. Uh, it's more complicated. We're going to see many more complicated nuances in these situations uh, going forward. It's just got to happen. Yeah. Uh, what can I say? <laughs> as as my husband puts it, stuck in first gear for first marriage. It's not complicated. That's true. Uh, we are starting to run out of time, so uh, we will. Uh, th- this is a really interesting conversation because, you know, we usually talk about the nuts and bolts and the politics, but uh, this is this is something that really hits people. So, uh, Bill, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, it certainly is. Uh, it certainly is uh, real life. Uh, there are such a variety of different. Uh, uh, combinations of, of grandparents and families, as David said, it makes it, it very difficult. And I would just uh, repeat that uh, if you're thinking of changing your life at this point to maybe be going to an office less often, this is also one of the things you have to think about. Look at your family and figure out you're going to handle it. It's not as easy as it may look or as may have been in the past. Peter. Yeah, well, uh, you know, following up on something um, Bill has said through CARP is that, you know, um, okay, now the, the government is taking care of, of uh, you know, children, uh, daycare for children, subsidizing daycare, creating a system to take care of children. Now it's got to do something at the other end of life for, for the very elderly. And, uh, you know, uh, what we have now isn't acceptable. So maybe let's put some as much thought into the end of life as we do it to the beginning of life and and come up with something more suitable than we have now. Hmm. David, last word to you. Just, uh, I think we're in the middle of redefining the very word grandparent because the past model that we all grew up with was uh, grandpa and grandma retired if they were working at 65. They had maybe 10, 12 years to go. Now maybe they got 30 years to go. So who is the person that is the grandparent in the first place? As you said, they have a life, they have, and that richness and that variety is only going to increase with more and more longevity. So I think we're going to come back to this topic often because the variations and the qualitative differences are going to become ever more interesting uh, as longevity continues its inevitable uh, uh, journey. Lots to think about. Thank you so much to our Zoomer squad, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Mugridge, and David Kravitz, and we will talk again soon. Thank Thanks, you. Libby. Bye, Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Okay, we're going to take a break, and uh, speaking of breakups, well, uh, Will and Kate certainly got the message on their Caribbean tour that a lot of those countries want to break up with the monarchy, and Is that going to spur people here who are thinking of the same thing? We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
Prince William and Kate Middleton's tour of the Caribbean didn't go according to plan. It was disrupted by protests, and even the Prime Minister of Jamaica told the royal couple of the country's intention of severing ties with the monarchy. And there were leaders demanding reparations for slavery, and this on top of what happened in Barbados about four months ago when it severed ties with the monarchy, and this on a trip that was supposed to celebrate the Queen's 70 years on the throne. So, will this accelerate and encourage people here who want the same thing to and the British monarch serving as our head of state. And what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Peter Dinolo, Vice Chairman of Hill and Knowlton, Canada, and uh, a very vocal anti-monarchist. Hi, Peter. Hi, Libby. So, uh were you surprised when you saw what happened on uh, Will and Kate's tour? No, not at all. I mean, as you mentioned, Barbados uh, has already uh, uh, already moved to abolish the monarchy there. And, uh, you know, as, as the years go by, there's less and less of, a, of an attachment to, uh, to uh, Britain and to the crown. I mean, my views for uh, opposing the monarchy, and I've been on your show before and spoken about them, really have to do with the, you know, the, the fact that it's an anti-democratic uh, Institution that you know you're born into a bloodline that gives you uh, that gives you uh, uh, makes you head of state, which is fundamentally undemocratic. And secondly, it's it's uh, it's a foreign institution. I mean, there was a time when Canada, of course, was a British colony, but that was uh, you know more than a century ago, or 150 years ago, and we've moved away from that. And our population doesn't have ties to the UK, and it's time to move. I think in 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 the Caribbean, it's it's uh, it's more, even more dramatic. Because of the role of uh, the British Empire in a very violent colonization of that region, of the role of slavery, uh, uh, you know, which the British Empire uh, brought to the Caribbean. And so I think for, for those reasons, it's even more dramatic in, uh, in that part of the world. Uh, there's always been a lot of talk that, uh, that we or others should wait until after the Queen's demise, but she seems to be really stepping back from royal duties. Do you think I mean, that... She's, she's incredible. She's, I mean, I'm a virulent anti-monarchist, but I have to tip my hat to, to a remarkable person. I mean, she's kept this institution going 70 years longer than it had to by any <laughs> rights because of her discipline, because of her approach. She's really, uh, really one of the most remarkable people in the world. Uh, that said, uh, you know, listen, I was just listening to, to ads on your, on your own radio station for estate planning. People don't wait until obviously they're gone to plan their estates. They have to do that in advance. And now is the time while the queen is still with us. She won't be with us for a lot longer. And I don't think that's, uh, you know, that's just a, uh, 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 a fact of, uh, a demographic fact, uh, or a scientific fact. But, uh, so the time to plan is not after she's gone. But but before, just like, you know, we plan for uh, our estates uh, before we go. And well, I think it's totally legitimate to have these discussions. And Canadians are, you know, we were so polite. We like to, whenever subjects that are somewhat controversial come up, we look at our shoes and kind of like cough. And it's the argument here is, and it's a, listen, it's a legitimate argument. It's not bothering anyone. It's not holding us back. Uh, it's just a symbol. So why don't we live with it? Well, 
you know, the Canadian flag, uh, the, the old red ensign, which had the British flag in it, was just a symbol. And everyone said that to Lester Pearson in 1965. And uh, he was right to get rid of it because it was, he was right to, to lead the charge for a Canadian flag, the one we have now, because it is a symbol that unites Canada and it brings people together. And uh, the British monarchy is not. Well, it's 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 interesting because uh, she seems to be easing the next gen in, and I'm sometimes I I to the extent that I watch it, and it's not that that great, but I'm wondering is is there kind of a a competition? Is she waiting to see is is Will are Will and Kate better or Charles and Camilla? I don't know. I'm not a royal watcher, but I'll tell you that that this this trip to the Caribbean shows that even with the most uh, photogenic uh, uh, face possible on it, uh, the monarchy uh, still is a, is a, a creaky uh, anachronism that doesn't pass muster in this, in, this, uh, in this 21st century. So even with, you know, two poster uh, children for the monarchy in the form of, uh, you know, Prince William and his wife, uh, Prince, uh, Princess Kate, the... Uh, no, she's a duchess, still, I think. Affiliate. She's not a princess. Whatever. Sorry. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, whatever. Um, and of course, Peter, the, the big argument here is always, you know, we need to change the Constitution to do this. And oh, boy, uh, that probably won't fly. And at any rate, more trouble than it's worth. That's true. And, you know, we had a pretty traumatic uh, uh, failed constitutional uh, effort about 30 years ago. Uh, so I can understand that. Uh, but at the rate we're going, it doesn't mean that people like me shouldn't be insisting that this is a, a, an embarrassing anachronism for Canada. Secondly, at the rate we're going, you know, uh, we're going to be the last, the British will get rid of it before we do. Uh, you know, we'll be the last country standing with the British monarch as our head of state at the rate it's going. And I don't think that's that's not the kind of candidate I believe in. I, I doubt that because uh, in terms of tourism for for the British, I don't think they'd get rid of it. I think it's a big moneymaker. And the other thing I have to tell you that I don't get, just by virtue of, of being married in there, these people become mega, mega, mega celebrities. And I, I have to tell you, I mean, the whole celebrity culture is, I, I don't know about it to begin with, but but I don't get that. No, but listen, the world is spinning today on Will Smith's lap uh, 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 on TV last night So uh, of Chris Rock. So, I mean, that's, yeah, the, we're in a Kardashian world in a lot of ways. It's <laughs> yeah. not a good thing. And uh, this is one way in which I think we need to, uh, this is something we can do to, uh, to change it, to, to, to focus people's um, uh, hopes and faith in, in democracy and in our institutions, not in some foreign monarch. Okay, let us take a call from Ron in Guelph. Well, Libby, thanks for taking my call. Well, you know, one thing I like about the monarchy, which even my son is, he and I disagree on that, but anyway, he's the new generation, is that what sep- it, it, the monarchy is what separates us from the United States. Um, I don't really want us to get to the point where we become just another republic. Um, I mean, we've got the royal family who come here, they visit, and they make news in the U.S., and I just think it's, I think we should keep the ties with the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks for that, Ron. 
Uh, yeah, a lot of people are. Uh, a lot of people feel that way. They feel ties, but it's it's interesting too. You know, as the demographics of the country changes, then you have people that, in terms of their culture, they they have absolutely no uh, nostalgia or ties one way or another to the British monarchy. Right. And, you know, it used to be uh, that argument. Listen, it's a respectable and a totally legitimate argument. I think it was a stronger argument 50 years ago before Canadians had a a stronger sense of Canadian identity, a sense of self-confidence, and before the U.S. kind of went crazy. And I think we look south of the border and we see that they're not like us at all. We're not like them. And it's not because of the monarchy that, uh, that defines us. The other point, Libby, is that we don't need to become a U.S.-style republic uh, if we get rid of the monarchy. I mean, there's many uh, countries, uh, Israel, Germany, Italy, uh, India, that have um, heads of state that are largely ceremonial, uh, that aren't directly elected the way a U.S. president is, and where the real power lies with the, uh, with the prime minister in parliament. And, you know, we have a governor general in Canada. Everyone seems more or less uh, satisfied with that institution. And uh, there's no reason why that couldn't continue if uh, we severed the uh, the ties with the monarchy. Any plans to try and push this forward? Well, there's no real kind of organized group. It's 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 uh, it's it's a a view that I've had really since I was a teenager. Uh, And there are a lot of people who feel the way I do. Clearly, uh, the 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 ties. This is a gentleman just you know uh, we just spoke to talked about how his son disagrees with him. So there's a generational kind of uh, change of thinking that's happening, and uh, I don't know. It's gonna, you know, uh, any politician would look at this. I know, I you know, I worked for for best boss I ever had was John Prime Minister John Gretchen, and he wouldn't touch it because, well, first of all, he's not anti-monarchy. He's quite close to the Queen, and secondly, he uh, he understood that this wasn't a, uh, a ballot question that people were going to stake their their you know their, their decide their ballots on, and it was just rile up a lot of people who uh, who like the monarchy. And so I think that's probably the way it is now, although I think that decreases with every, uh, with every year. Okay. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? No, listen, I mean, it's, uh, it's always great to push a pet, a pet project like this that I've held for a long time. And I think the, the, the more we can talk about, you know, the democratic institutions that bind us together, uh, parliament, elections, the laws, the charter of rights, uh, the, the, the stronger we, we are as a country, as opposed to kind of fawning over some fairy tale. Okay. Peter DeNolo, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye. We are going to take a break. And when we return, the Sunshine List came out on Friday. Remember that? It's the list of public servants who make more than $100,000 a year. Uh, $100,000, right, is not what it was when the list first started in 1996. But there are some pretty eye-popping salaries there. And the numbers of people on the list has really grown. We're going to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Ontario's annual sunshine list of public servants earning six figures has ballooned to a record 244,188 with 
38,536 more workers on the public sector salary disclosure. Now, the government says it was mostly because of the number of teachers crossing the $100,000 mark. And granted, $100,000 isn't what it used to be when the the list was first released back in 1996. But it is the top earners whose salaries are eye-popping. Four of the top sunshine list spots were occupied by OPG, Ontario Power Generation, CEO Kenneth Hartwick, made $1.6 million in salary in 2021, and that's up nearly a third. I'm looking at the kinds of raises people had as uh, a lot of us were suffering because of the pandemic. A third, it seems like a lot. Other three, also over a million bucks. Uh, University Health Network Chief Executive Dr. Kevin Smith, over 845000 Frankly, for doing that, that should be a high-paid job. Uh, and Metrolinks, 800 and looks like almost 839000 But the, the big shocker for me, because I didn't even realize this was a job that was considered public sector, is... Uh, Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association. I know that nurses are in the public sector, but I would have thought that the union leader uh, would be private. And she made almost $566,000. That was an increase of 9.6% after a 26.8% raise the year before. That seems like very big raises. Anyway, uh, let us bring in Jay Goldberg, the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hi, Jay. Hello. Great to be with you. Okay. Great to be with you. So what do you make of these numbers? Well, we've been seeing since really the pandemic began that it's really a tale of two Ontarios here in the province. We're seeing those who work for the government and particularly many of those who work for the government, who get salaries at 500000 600000 700000 all the way past a million. Uh, we're seeing them see uh, their pay grow, despite the fact that we had lockdowns and closures. And we saw Ontario taxpayers all across the province lose jobs or hours at work or have their small businesses shut down. And so it's really difficult uh, to see such a substantial increase in the number of people who are making over $100,000 uh, in an environment like this. And then, of course, to see a major increase with some of these extremely high-paid people in the government sector. Um, you know, we need fundamental change here. The province can't afford this. We've got a deficit that's over $13 billion. Uh, and it's really not the time to be seeing such massive increases when you have people in the private sector who've lost their jobs or their businesses and they're the ones paying those salaries. Uh, let me give the numbers out. Jay is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're talking about the Sunshine List. Hundreds of thousands of more people on the Sunshine List. The government says it's because of teachers making more money, crossing that $100,000 threshold, but some pretty eye-popping salaries at the top of the list. And Jay, what about my question? I was surprised that a professional association leader is, is a public sector job. I would have thought nurses, 
public sector and they pay dues. Am I? Well, they do, but unfortunately, there are a lot of people that work in similar positions that you outlined there who actually are on the public payroll. I think it's very important for us to know that some of these union bosses are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and their salary is being paid by us, the taxpayers. So I think it's a really important thing for all of us to recognize that. And, you know, again, when it's hard to see when we're going through difficult times, when you see um, nurses and doctors and those on the front lines who absolutely should be getting pay increases right now because of all the hard work they've done. We see that. We see their wages going up somewhat, uh, especially nurses. And then you see these bureaucrats uh, and these union bosses whose salaries are going up exponentially, who are making four or five, six times as much as the typical nurse does. And so I think not only should we be worried and upset about the high number of Ontarians who are making over $100,000 paid for by us as taxpayers, it's almost a quarter of a million now. But we should be even more upset by the fact that bureaucrats and union bosses are making four or five times as much as nurses and others. And they're very clearly in this list. And they're making, at times, up to half a million dollars a year. Well, exactly, because the agitation was for a while nurses were covered by that agreement and couldn't get more than a percent. They got a little bit of raise. But again, uh, you know, there's a big discrepancy between... Uh, increases of over 30% uh, in a couple of years and then trying to get a tiny single-digit increase for a frontline worker. Absolutely. And so that's what's been um, the difficult conversation we've been having in Ontario. And of course, we're facing inflation. And so there are uh, questions around that as well. But when you see these, um, you know, these union bosses and these leaders coming out insisting that frontline workers need to be paid more for the hard work that they've done. And in some cases, you know, that may very well be justified. We've seen the pandemic. We've seen everything our hardworking frontline people have done for this province. Uh, And you see these people who are out there calling for changes, calling for nurses to be paid more or others. And, you know, that's fine if you want to come out there and do that. But I think it's important to recognize all these people who are leading these campaigns are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, way more than the people they claim to represent. And so I think it's time for a real conversation about how do we make sure that people on the Sunshine List, especially near the top of the list, making hundreds of thousands or well over a million dollars a year, is that justified? Can we have that in Ontario? Should we be having that in the government sector? And talk a little less about, you know, exactly what nurses or frontline workers are making, but we need a very serious conversation about what these bosses and bureaucrats are making. Well, uh, back to OPG. I mean, I didn't see the breakdown of the salaries. Sometimes there's stock options that vest and things like that, and the government doesn't set those salaries. Right. Yeah, we've seen uh, CEO Kenneth Hartwick at uh, Ontario Power Generation. He made $1.6 million last year. The year before, it was about $1.2 million. Uh, he's been a leading uh, figure for the last several years. He's been at the top of the list. But you also, um, you know, you mentioned some, some other important ones. We see four people from Ontario Power Generation, a lot of corporation, a lot of um, people from Crown Agencies, hospitals. But the, the commonality here is these are a bunch of bureaucrats who are getting paid these these top dollars. 
These are people who are not on the front lines, who in many cases were able to work from home or, uh, you know, uh, were in a better position than a lot of Ontarians who lost their businesses or jobs throughout the pandemic. And it's just startling to see the dozens and dozens of names here uh, who are getting these top salaries of hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a year. And these are the people who are bureaucrats. These are the people uh, who are making decisions in the back rooms and not the frontline workers. So I actually think we need to have a real focus and perhaps a second list. Uh, of people who are bureaucrats specifically who are not frontline workers and we need to focus very clearly on what they are doing and exactly how much they're paid and whether it's taxable benefits, whether it's uh, bonuses or whatever, it's got to be taken account of and we can't allow this to continue when we're facing such a massive deficit and when we want to do more for people like nurses. Well, you know, I remember back in the day when there was always uh, a lot of outrage that greeted this. You don't really see much of that. And I'm uh, I'm looking at our board and, and people don't seem to be upset about uh, this. Um, and again, one of the other things that really strikes me is that we've known all along that there are really two pandemics. There are people who've been really, really hit hard. There are people who've done really, really well during the pandemic. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you can look at the health agencies as well. Um, you know, they've been doing important work, but there's people like chief medical officers of health all across the province. They've been doing very important work, but you look at the chief medical officer of health and uh, Sudbury made over $800,000 last year uh, while you had frontline nurses and others who were well, making a small again, fraction of that. It, 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 I, I mean, that left me shaking my head because it's not even remotely comparable to other uh, medical officers of health. Yeah, not at all. That was extraordinarily high. Our chief medical officer of health for the whole province of Ontario made about $450,000 last year. Now, that's still a heck of a lot that's of money. That's a lot. I think but that's uh, that's more than the premier makes. It is. It's twice as much as what the premier makes. Right. And I think that's an important conversation as well. Yeah, and and who sets these salaries and what are they based on? I mean, I think that's that's part of the other question. Like you have one medical officer of health making that kind of money and then other ones that, you know, make a fraction of it. It it, it just it doesn't make a lot of sense. It absolutely doesn't. And I really do think that it's time. And I think a lot of people hear the number 100,000. And you mentioned that this list was first created in 1996. Well, getting $100,000 at that time was a heck of a lot of money. It translates to something like $160,000 today. So if some people are perhaps not uh, as alarmed, someone working uh, as a government employee in this province is making around $100,000, I think we need a separate list to focus on all of these bureaucrats who are getting extremely high pay. And that's got to be something that we have to be outraged as a province. Um, you know, we'll talk about someone making $100,000, but then as we see these bureaucrats, we just talked about Penny Sutcliffe making $800,000, Kenneth Hartwick making $1.6 These are the kinds of people we really have to be focusing on and scrutinize their efforts on and question the government as to why they're making so much money that we, the taxpayers, are paying for. Okay, a good questions all around. Uh, Jay, Thank you so much for that. Pleasure. Thank you.
Okay, that is Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, on the Sunshine List, which had some eye-popping and, dare I say, some hard-to-explain numbers on the salaries of some of our top bureaucrats. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.